0: You can turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is where we'll be starting this morning. Parents, let me say welcome to you. If you are in town visiting us, great to have you here. I hope that you have not spent too much time waiting around in traffic. It is a zoo here. On Parents Weekend, all of us townies like myself, we just stay south of town. So we've been uh, sheltering in place this whole weekend while you guys have been taking over the town. I hope it's been fun. We're grateful to have you this morning. We're especially grateful for the gift of your children. We're really grateful that you have shared your sons and your daughters with us for the four or five or 10 years or however long they're here in College Station. We love getting to work with them, getting to teach them and train them and raise them up as leaders. Grace Bible Church has actually we've been around for a long time. We will celebrate our 50th anniversary next year as a church. And for 50 years, the strategic focus of our church has been that campus, reaching the students of A&M Blinn. That's why we're here, because we believe students are the greatest influencers in the world. Aggies literally go all over the planet Earth from here. And so it's our privilege to get to equip them and train them and prepare them to take Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Earth. We'd love to have you partner with us in that mission of training and teaching your kids of preparing your kids and preparing the next generation of kids who are going to come to A&M and Blinn. We've put a, a bookmark in the chair in front of you, a little pocket in front of you. We'd love to have you take one of those and just put it in your Bible to remind you to pray for us. We need you to pray for our church. We need you to pray for our leadership. We need you to pray for our families. We need you to pray for your students who are here. And we need you to especially to pray for the A&M and Blend campuses. You come here on Parents Weekend and you go to Breakaway on Saturday night and you come to church on Sunday morning and you think, man, everybody in this town is a Christian. Well, they're not. There may be 10 or 20,000 students here who who worship Jesus Christ, but that still leaves 20 or 30,000 who do not. There is still an incredible amount of work to do to reach A&M and Blinn with the good news of Jesus Christ. So please pray for us, for our church, that God would continue to help us to reach the current and future students who will call this home. We'd love to have you partner with us financially if the Lord leads you to do that. There's a URL on the card where you can give to the Legacy Fund here at Grace. It helps us reach current and future students at A&M and Blinn. Again, thank you for joining us. This morning as we continue our series in Genesis, we're gonna actually turn a corner. We finished with the book of Genesis last week, so we're going to turn a corner and we're going to ask ourselves a question. Here's where I want us to begin this morning. I want to ask you, what is it that identifies us as Christians? How do you know if a person belongs to this thing we call Christianity? What are the identifying marks of someone who can rightly be called a Christian? What is it that makes you a Christian? If you go out and you ask people on the street how they would answer that question, what identifies a person as a Christian, they might say, well, it's that they attend church on Sunday morning or maybe that it's they read the Bible and, and pray on a regular basis or it's maybe they, they practice some kind of biblical morality in their life or maybe that, that it's simply that they're American. Actually, if you go to foreign countries, you'll often hear that. Well, you're a Christian because you're American. What is it that identifies us as a Christian? Well, actually, all of these answers are wrong. None of these are what identifies or marks a person as a Christian. This is not what makes you a Christian. You're not a Christian because of where you sit on Sunday morning. You're not a Christian because of the good things you do, like reading the Bible or the bad things you avoid, like immorality. You're certainly not a Christian based on your nationality. So what is it that identifies a person as a Christian? Well, the answer is found in Matthew 16. Look with me, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So what is it that identifies a person as a Christian? Well, the right answer is, it's your answer to that question. In verse 15, Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Your answer to that question determines whether or not you are a Christian. Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We will unpack that answer in the rest of our sermon. But what I want you to notice is two things that Jesus says in response to Peter's answer. First, Jesus says, you are blessed. Because of your answer to the most important question, you are blessed in life. You receive God's blessing by giving the right answer to the question. Then notice he says, on this rock I will build my church. Now Peter's name was rock, Petros in Greek. It meant small rock. But Jesus says on this big rock, Petra in Greek. It means the really big rock. The really big rock that the church is built on isn't Peter, it's built on Peter's answer. The church is built on the words that Peter says, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That answer to the most important question is what all of the church, all of Christianity is built upon. So what is the identifying mark of a Christian? It's not their behavior, it's their answer to the most important question in all of life, who is Jesus? That's the question that matters more than anything else. Your answer to that question determines everything for you. That's what determines whether you're part of this Christianity thing or not. That's the essence of the Christian faith. Our answer to that question, the most important question in all of life. Who is Jesus? That's what we're going to try to answer this morning. But as we look at this question, who is Jesus? As we try to unpack it and understand it, parents who are visiting us, you're going to find that you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. You're at a disadvantage to your students because they've been with us this whole year studying the book of Genesis. And if you really want to understand who Jesus is, you can't start in the book of Matthew. You've got to actually go all the way back to the beginning, to the book of, of Genesis. Because Jesus, if you want to really understand him, his story doesn't begin with angels and shepherds and magi and a little manger and a little baby. That's not where his story begins. It begins, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. That's the beginning of the story of Jesus. It goes from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to think about how to understand Jesus and understand the Bible, a, a useful way to think about it, compare it to TV. Compare the Bible to TV for a moment. The story of Jesus as revealed in the Bible is like Lost, not like CSI. <laughs> like Lost, not like CSI. CSI is what would be called episodic television, so every episode stands alone. You, you can jump in anytime you want, third season, middle of third season. It doesn't matter that you haven't seen the previous seasons because every episode is the same. There's a crime, there's a solution. There's nothing that carries over. Every episode stands alone. You can jump in at any point. That's not the Bible. That's, that's not how the Bible works. The Bible's more like Lost, but with a much more satisfying ending, a promise. Um, <laughs> or, or like Downton Abbey or 24. It's, it's what you call a serial drama. There is an overarching storyline that ties every episode together. You can't jump in the middle to understand. You've got to go all the way back to the beginning or you'll be completely clueless. That's how the Bible works. It's one overarching story that spans 66 individual books. And if you want to understand any point in that story, like Jesus' arrival in the book of Matthew, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go back to the beginning, back to the book of Genesis, to discover the Jesus of Genesis. And as we do that, as we go back to Genesis and we look at Jesus as he is revealed in Genesis, what we're going to discover from the book of of Genesis is that Jesus is the sovereign of Genesis and Jesus is the son of Genesis and Jesus is the savior of Genesis. So sovereign son, savior. That's what we're gonna see this morning. So let's jump right in. First thing that you need to understand about Jesus as you try to, to answer the question, who is this man? The first thing that you need to understand is that Jesus is the sovereign of Genesis, the sovereign creator of Genesis. Now, when Peter was asked the question, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the son of the living God. And when Peter said those words, son of the living God, I don't think Peter fully grasped the meaning of what he was saying. Because son of God was actually a title that was common in the Old Testament. It, it was the title for the king of Israel. Just as a son represents his father, so the king of Israel represented God, so people called him the, the son of God. So when Peter says son of the living God, I think at this point in time, all he knew to mean by that title was simply you're the king of Israel, which is true, that's big. Jesus is the king of Israel, that's a significant thing. But, but Peter doesn't yet fully grasp it. Because by son of the living God, God meant so much more than just king of Israel. Peter would get that. It would take a little while for him to fully unpack that. But but God meant something more. Jesus meant something more than just king of Israel by by son of the living God. You begin to see that in John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to the Jews. And he says to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. The grammar in Jesus' answer is, is messed up. Did you notice that? Verb tense is off. Should be before Abraham was, I was. Both past tense. Now if that's what Jesus had said before Abraham was, I was, that would be pretty stunning because Jesus would be claiming pre-existence 2,000 years before he showed up, he existed before Abraham's time. That would be a big thing, but but Jesus is claiming something so much more than pre-existence and so he messes up the grammar. Before Abraham was, I am. In Hebrew, I am translates to Yahweh. The name of God, your God's name. I don't know if you know this. Your God's name is actually the Hebrew verb, I am. That's who it is. I am that I am. That's, that's your God. And so Jesus is messing up the grammar to tell the Jews before Abraham was, I am Yahweh. I am that I am. I am the ever existent one. I am the sovereign creator without beginning, without end. Jesus is claiming to be the one true God revealed in the book of Genesis. And the Jews get that, right? Because they pick up stones. They know what it means. They're going to kill him on the spot. They understand that Jesus is claiming to be the sovereign creator of the book of Genesis. That takes us back to Genesis. Think about how Genesis began. Very first verse of your Bible. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's fascinating to see how John, the apostle John, begins his gospel, the gospel of John. When Jesus shows up, how does John begin it? In the beginning, exact same phrase. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's not an accidental repetition. John was very intentional. He is quoting Genesis 1-1 to tell us this man, Jesus, is the creator of Genesis 1-1. He was there. When the worlds were made. It was through him that all that was made was made. Father, Son, and Spirit working together to create, to redeem, to bless. That is the God of Genesis. That is Jesus. Jesus is the one true God, the sovereign creator. From all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Now, before we go on to the next title for Jesus, I want us to stop for a minute and ask ourselves, so what? What does that matter to us? Here today in College Station, Texas, April 2014, what does it matter to you, practically speaking, in your life, that this man named Jesus is the sovereign creator of the book of Genesis? Why does that matter? Well, the answer is the reason that it matters is that if Jesus really claimed to be God, Yahweh, the one true creator God, then he is either your Lord or he's a liar or lunatic. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can't have Jesus as your friend and your example and your model. No, you got to have him as your Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic. If he is not who he claimed to be, Yahweh, the creator God, then you're all wasting your time here this morning. You're worshiping a madman or a liar. But if he is who he claimed to be, if he is Yahweh, the sovereign creator God, then that means he is your Lord. He is master of every square inch of your life. Everything you are, everything that belongs to you actually belongs to him. As Kuiper put it so eloquently, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If he is who he said he is, then there's nothing in your life, not your relationships, not your possessions, not your plans, not your education, not your dreams, nothing in your life that can rightly be called yours. Just like there's nothing in my life that can rightly be called mine. It is all his. To give, to take, or do with as he pleases. He is either Lord of every square inch of our lives or he's a liar or lunatic. No going halfway with Jesus. Gotta recognize that. He claimed to be the sovereign God, the creator, Yahweh. He either is and owns everything in our lives or he's not worth wasting your time with. So that's the first title for Jesus. Who is this man named Jesus? He is the sovereign creator, of the book of genesis second title we're going to look at for jesus as we go back to the book of genesis jesus is the son of genesis this one takes some explanation look at the beginning of matthew matthew chapter 1 verse 1 matthew 1 1 it's interesting when you look at the book of matthew the first book of the new testament it does not begin how you would expect the book to begin Figure an author is gonna start with something to really hook you in, really drive your interest. Matthew begins with a whole chapter of genealogy, just names. It's really, it really seems like a very boring beginning, but it's very important. It's actually really, really significant. And the, the meat of it, the center of what Matthew is doing by starting his book with a genealogy is found in verse one. Look at verse one. The beginning of the New Testament. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Both Matthew and Luke include exhaustive genealogies at the beginning of their books that tie Jesus back to Abraham. Why do they do that? Why do they spend so much time proving to you that Jesus descends from Abraham? Well, it's all about a promise that we studied given in Genesis chapter 12. A promise between God and a man named Abraham. Let me refresh your memory. Here's how it goes. Genesis 12, some of the most important words you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God showed up and promised this man, this man named Abraham, first of all, land. Whole lot of land, all the way from the the Nile River to the Euphrates River. It would belong to his descendants forever. And he promised him seed or descendants. He would have countless descendants after him. And third, he promised him blessing. I will bless you, and, and even more importantly, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. All of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. So God makes these promises of land, seed, and blessing here in Genesis 12, all the way back in Genesis 12. Then three chapters later, you'll recall, in Genesis 15, God takes those promises and he seals them in something called a covenant covenant in the ancient world most significant agreement you could have between two people the abrahamic covenant was a binding irrevocable eternal contract between god and abraham god promised abraham all this will be fulfilled for you and your descendants and as soon as god makes that promise in chapter 12 and covenant in chapter 15 from then on the rest of your bible is wrapped up in that promise Actually, you can summarize your Bible really easily from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of the Revelation. Want to know what it's all about? From Genesis to Revelation, it's about God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. That's the story of the Bible. From Genesis 12 to the end of Revelation, God keeping his word. God fulfilling the covenant made to Abraham. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant, it reminds me of, of my wedding day. On my wedding day, I made a promise to my wife, to Julie, that changed everything. Everything. My, my life was wrapped up in that promise from then on. That's exactly how the Bible works. God has made a promise that changed everything. The rest of human history is wrapped up in this promise that he made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. So the rest of the Old Testament, rest of the Old Testament, basic idea of the rest of the Old Testament is the descendants of Abraham, who we call the, the Israelites, the Jews, waiting for God to fulfill the promises made To Abraham that's what the Old Testament is about the Israelites waiting for God to keep his word for God to fulfill the covenant generation after generation comes and fails to receive all that God had promised so the Israelites get some of the land but not all of the land and not for very long and they get some of the blessing but not all of the blessing and not for very long And and they're really never much of a blessing to the rest of the planet. They're as sinful and dysfunctional as everyone else. And so generation after generation of Israelites come and go without receiving and enjoying the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Why? Why did generation after generation of Israelites all through the Old Testament fail to receive what God had promised? Because of something God gave right after the book of Genesis, something called the law. The law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, all of those crazy rules and and regulations and ceremonies and rituals that God laid out from Exodus to Deuteronomy. The law, the law is God's gift to the descendants of Abraham because it tells them exactly what they must do to receive and enjoy the promises made to Abraham. Just do the law. Check the boxes, do the law, and you will receive and enjoy all that was promised to Abraham. Problem was... No one was able to keep the law. The law was like a test that everyone failed. Every Israelite, bar none, Moses, he got angry in the wilderness and blew it. David, he he failed with Bathsheba. Solomon, he failed with idols. Every Israelite, one after another, fails the test of the law and therefore does not receive the promises of the covenant. If you want to think about the storyline of the Old Testament, it's actually a lot like Warren Buffett's billion-dollar March Madness challenge uh, from just a month ago. So Buffett promises a billion dollars to anyone who can fill out a perfect bracket, and apparently like 15 million people do try to fill out a bracket on his website. Um, About 84% of them were eliminated by game one. First game, 84% gone. All the rest are gone by day two of the tournament. They didn't even make it close. Everyone was depressed about that, except Warren Buffett. Of course, he's not depressed about that. But everyone else is depressed because no one got anywhere close to getting the billion dollars. That's the Old Testament for you. All of these incredible promises from God to the descendants of Abraham, but no one passes the test of the law. Everyone falls short, incredibly far short, of what's required to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and bring blessing to the human race. Everyone falls short until. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. An often overlooked story in the Bible that is one of the most important events anywhere in your Bible. Matthew chapter 4. Look with me starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. You can't overstate the importance of those 11 verses. Because what those 11 verses tell you is that after 2,000 years of waiting for a descendant of Abraham, a son of Abraham, to finally step up and obey the law and bring blessing to the human race, finally we found our man, the one and only human being who has ever passed the test of the law, who has ever proven worthy to receive the covenant promises and bring them to the human race. That's why Peter calls Jesus the Christ in Matthew 16, the Christ. What does Christ mean? For so many people, it's just Jesus' last name. Like Blake Jennings, Jesus Christ. For others, it's just a curse word that you really shouldn't say in public. That's not right. Neither of those are right. Christ is a title. It's actually one of the most important titles you'll find anywhere in the Bible. It's Christ in Greek. What is it in Hebrew? Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Well, the Messiah in the Bible is the person anointed by God to fulfill all of his promises. The person anointed by God to finally be the perfect son of Abraham who will receive all of the covenant promises and bring them to the human race, bring blessing to all the families of the world. So when a Jew hears that Jesus is the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, you cannot overstate what that would mean to them. It would be unbelievable, after 2,000 years of waiting, finally we have found the Messiah. The closest thing that I can imagine to the importance of this word Messiah, uh, my wife Julie and I went through a a couple years battling with infertility. We really wanted to have a family, weren't successful. Uh, Month after month, we'd take a pregnancy test and it would give us the word negative. Negative, 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 negative. Month after month, just like the Israelites Negative, negative, negative. About two years into our struggle, we're driving one day down the road, and nurse calls my wife and tells her, your blood test came back positive. One little word changed everything. I had to pull over because there's so many tears, so much craziness in the car at that moment, because we'd waited so long for that. So I think about how ecstatically joyful we were to hear that word positive. That was after only two years of waiting. Think about the Jews. They had waited two thousand years. For God to fulfill all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of the promises he had made. And finally they hear, the Messiah has come. That's what it meant to them. It meant that God had arrived to fulfill all of his promises to the descendants of Abraham. Okay, now let's ask the same question that we asked for the previous title. So what? What does it matter to you right here today in College Station 2014 that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham, the Messiah of the book of Genesis? What does that matter to you? What relevance does that have to your life? Well, very simple. As you look at Jesus as the promised son, the Messiah of Genesis, what that does is it it proves to you that God will do whatever it takes to keep his promises to you. Let me explain what I mean by that. Between the promise made to Abraham about 2000 B.C., And the arrival of Jesus, the Israelites had totally blown it. I mean, really bad stuff. Read the book of Judges. It's awful. They had failed over and over again, done horrible things, and yet God never went back on his word. God didn't revoke the covenant. God didn't take back the promises. Instead, he did something absolutely stunning. After 2,000 years of Abraham's descendants, generation after generation, Jew after Jew had failed the test, God the Son took on human flesh and became a son of Abraham so that he could keep Abraham's end of the bargain. That's a beautiful thing about the Abrahamic covenant. God fulfilled both ends. God fulfilled both sides of the bargain of the law. Yeah, I'll be your God and I'll be you. I'll take your place. I'll fulfill the conditions on both sides of the covenant. What that demonstrates for you is that there is literally nothing God won't do to keep his promises. Even if it means becoming human, taking on our suffering, our pain, and our sin, and dying in our place. He will do literally whatever it takes to keep his promises because he is absolutely faithful absolutely faithful to his word. It's so about a week ago, I had made a promise to my little girl, Gracie, she's about four and a half, a promise I probably should not have made in hindsight. I promised her in the middle of the day when I was feeling good, that I would give her a piggyback ride after dinner. Problem was, by the end of dinner, I was really hurting, I had a bad back, my neck was killing me, my girl is getting to be a little bit, a little bit tall, a little bit big, a little bit heavy, and so um, after dinner, she looks at me, big four and a half year old girl, and she says, Daddy, it's, is it time to give me a piggyback ride like you promised? And and so what am I going to say to Grace? I say, of course. I I don't care if it puts me in the hospital. I'm going to give my girl a piggyback ride because I promised. I made a promise and I'm going to keep it because here's the deal. Parents, our kids are going to get to know their heavenly father by looking at their earthly fathers. And so I have to do whatever it takes to keep my promises because he's done whatever it takes to keep his promises. Even at great cost to himself, Even at great pain to himself, Jesus did whatever it took to fulfill his promises to us. That's what it means that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the promised son of Genesis. So how do you apply this to your life? One practical thing, it seems like a small thing, but it's actually been really helpful to me, I'm trying to do it in my own life. Uh, I use the word Christ often when I'm talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ, like in my prayers and in talking to people about him. Problem is that that word Christ, it, it does, doesn't mean anything to us anymore. It feels like a last name or a curse word. So I'm trying to consciously switch in my brain that every time I see or think Christ, I replace it with Messiah. So now for me, Jesus is Messiah Jesus. That's what I try to say to my kids. I'm not not always perfect at that, but in my prayers, I try to say Messiah Jesus because Christ doesn't mean anything to me anymore, but Messiah does. Messiah reminds me that God is so absolutely faithful that he will do whatever it takes to fulfill his promises, including taking on human flesh and dying in our place. So for me now, Jesus is Messiah Jesus. To remind me, that's how faithful God is. Literally do whatever it takes to fulfill his promises. So Jesus is the sovereign creator of Genesis, and Jesus is the promised perfect son of Genesis, who fulfills all the conditions of the covenant so that we can receive the blessings of God. Finally, third thing that you need to know about Jesus from the book of Genesis is that Jesus is the savior of Genesis. Jesus is the Savior who delivers us from the problem presented in Genesis chapter three. Let me just rehearse the history for you for a moment. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit create. The heavens and the earth, they make it from nothing. And then they create life. And at the pinnacle of life, they create something special, something unique, humanity. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, God's image bearers. God creates Adam and Eve and then he gives to his image bearers an incredible gift that he didn't give to any other living thing. He gave them the gift of choice. God would not force Adam and Eve to love him or obey him. He gave them the free choice. You can choose either to obey and love me or rebel. I give you the choice and to give you an opportunity to exercise that choice, I will plant a tree right in the middle of the garden. And I will tell you, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can eat freely from every other tree of the garden, just not this one. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That is your choice. I give you this opportunity. Sadly, you know what happened. Adam and Eve used that gift of choice to choose sin. And it brought death to the whole human race. Paul talks about that in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man, through Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The moment that Adam chose to eat that forbidden fruit, he plunged the human race into sin and death. A problem that we can't solve, a, fate, a curse that we can't deliver ourselves from. All human beings are born into sin and death and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves from that. Every human being born of the curse of sin until something happened 2,000 years ago. Turn to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two. On a night roughly 2,000 years ago, near a little town called Bethlehem, some angels showed up to some shepherds. Talked about a little baby that had just been born in a stable in a manger. Look with me, Luke chapter two, verse eight. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This little baby is Savior. Savior from what? Savior from the problem of Genesis, the curse of sin and death that no human being could deliver themselves from. Now we have found the one, the Savior who will deliver us. From the curse of sin and death he will do what we can't do he will raise us up and deliver us from that curse he will be what adam was not he actually has replaced adam jesus is the new adam whereas adam plunged us into sin and death jesus has delivered us has raised us into righteousness and life paul puts it this way later in romans 5 for as by one man's disobedience that's adam's sin the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus' obedience on the cross, the many will be made righteous. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is our new Adam. He is our Savior who has fixed what Adam broke. He has delivered us from the curse of sin and death that Adam plunged the human race into. Jesus is the Savior promised in Genesis. Now, as we've done for each of the previous titles, let's ask ourselves, so what? What does that matter to us today? This one's easy to answer. Because we all, every one of us in this room, we all need a savior to deliver us from the penalty of sin and the fear of death. That's what makes Christianity so unique. It offers you a savior who can deliver you from the curse of sin and death. That's what makes Christianity absolutely unique among all the religions of the world. Think about all other religions, all All the religions of the world, what they offer you is a path, a path that you can walk to find salvation. So they give you a list of rules that you need to follow, or five pillars that you need to practice, or a noble path that you need to walk, or ceremonies or rituals that you need to perform, all meant to earn salvation, all meant to save yourself. Whether that means going to heaven or reaching nirvana or finding reincarnation, whatever it is, they offer you a path of salvation. They tell you what to do to save yourself. Christianity is exactly the opposite. Christianity doesn't tell you what to do to save yourself. Christianity doesn't give you a path to walk to find salvation. Christianity gives you something much better. It gives you a savior, a savior who has already walked that path to rescue you from sin, Christianity gives you a man named Jesus who's done all the work that's required. He's followed all the rules. He's done everything that was needed to save you from sin and death. That's why Christianity is so much better than every other religion. All the religions of the world, they tell you what to do to save yourself. Christianity tells you it's done. It's done. When were you saved? Have you ever thought about that? When were you actually saved if you've trusted in Jesus Christ? When we share our testimony, we t- typically think about when we chose to believe in Jesus, and that's a good answer, but, but, temp- but really speaking about time, really speaking about when it happened, when were you saved? You were saved 2,000 years ago, when Jesus hung on the cross, died for your sins, and rose from the dead. That was the moment in human history when you were saved, because it's when Jesus did all the work. You don't add anything to that. You don't do anything to earn your salvation. Jesus earned it all. You don't earn God's love. He did. You don't earn God's forgiveness, He earned it for you. You don't earn heaven, He earned it for you. Jesus died and rose from the dead to earn salvation for you so that He could give it to you for free. God's love, God's forgiveness, the gift of heaven as an absolutely free gift. But just as in Genesis 1, God won't force it on you, He won't force it on you, He gives you a choice. You get to choose either to accept that free gift of eternal life and forgiveness that Jesus has earned for you or to say, no, I don't want that. I'm gonna do it on my own. You have a choice. That choice is what makes you a Christian. That moment when you say to God, yes. Yes, I I choose to receive eternal life and forgiveness as a free gift. I'm not gonna try to earn it anymore. I'm gonna believe that it's mine for free because Jesus died for me. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus did all the work so that I could be saved. Christianity gives you a savior, not a path to self-salvation. If you think about who Jesus is and what he's done as the savior of the book of Genesis, it's been convicting this week as I've thought about how I parent my kids. What, what do I do when my kids make a mess? Which they do often. Uh, they make a mess and what I do is I stand over them and I tell them what to do to fix their mess. Put that toy back in that box. Go grab a towel and clean that up. And I don't know what to do with that, so go ask your mommy. So I I tell them how to fix the mess that they have made, but that's not how God treats us. God doesn't stand over us and tell us, here's what you gotta do to save yourself. No, God gets down on his hands and his knees. Jesus took on human flesh. He came down and he fixed what we broke for us. We don't do it, he did it. He did it at great cost to himself. He took all the pain to die in our place and rise from the dead. He comes down and fixes what we broke. That's what it means that Jesus is the Savior of Genesis. He is the one who has taken on human flesh, died, and risen from the dead so that he could do all the work required to save you. All you got to do is say, Yes, I want that. So Jesus is the sovereign creator of Genesis, and he is the promised perfect son of Genesis. And he is the savior of Genesis that we have all desperately needed. That's who Jesus is. So let me end by throwing this question that we've been talking about back at you. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he to you? The most important question you will ever answer in this lifetime is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the most important question. It determines everything. According to the Bible, that determines whether you have eternal life, whether you're forgiven, whether you go to heaven, whether you're a Christian. That question is everything. So how do you answer it? If you look at what we've studied this morning and you just say, man, I, I don't understand a lot of the stuff that Blake was talking about or I find it hard to believe or I'm just not ready to go there yet, let me please encourage you to invest the time, invest the mental effort to study the question of who Jesus is. That's the essence of your religion. Put forth the time to study who Jesus is. And let me give you some practical steps. These are, for everyone in the room, practical steps that you can take in the next few months to go deeper in your understanding of this man, Jesus, so you can offer a better answer to the question, who is he? First, let me encourage you to read the Gospel of Matthew while Genesis is still fresh in your mind. Read through Matthew. We're here in Easter week. It's an awesome opportunity to read Matthew as part of your morning devotions. Read through it. It may take you a couple months. may take you a couple weeks. Read through Matthew while Genesis is still fresh and look for echoes of Genesis in Jesus as is revealed in Matthew. Look at how he fulfills all of the problems and all of the promises of the book of Genesis. If you'll read Matthew shortly after Genesis, you will see connections you never realized were there. Better understand Jesus than you ever had before. So read Matthew. Second, you could download our Essentials or our His Story Bible Study packets. If you go to our website, all our Bible studies are free. We offer them to you whether you're a member or to live somewhere else. We'd love to have you go through. Essentials will take you through the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith, including Christology, who is Jesus. Walk you through. His story walks you through the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation so that you can see the big idea and how it's all about Jesus. So essentials or his story, go through one of those this summer if you haven't before. Two of the most valuable Bible studies you'll ever do. Finally, third thing, if you're struggling with the question of who is Jesus, please come talk to one of us. Please come talk to a pastor here at Grace or a leader here at Grace Bible Church. I hear from a lot of people who just, they'll ask me for help and then they'll say, man, I'm so sorry, I know you're so busy. Uh, I know you don't have time for this. Well, I, I am busy, but I always have time for this. I always have time for this. I have meetings in the week where I gotta talk about budgets and talk about buildings. I'll skip them all to get to talk to you about who is Jesus, because that's the only thing in life that matters. That's it. Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say that Jesus is? I promise you, every pastor and every leader, every elder, every deacon at this church would drop anything to get to talk to you about who Jesus is. So please come talk to us if you're wrestling with this. We'll help you walk through your confusion, your curiosity, your doubts, so that you can arrive at Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as Exodus 34 says, you are a God compassionate and gracious. That's the first thing that you want us to know about you as you revealed yourself to Moses. You are a God full of compassion and grace. We see that this morning as we study Jesus as he's revealed in Genesis. We praise you and thank you that your son, Jesus, Yahweh, the creator God, that, that he freely chose to take on human flesh and become one of us so that he could live a perfect life for us and then die in our place on the cross so that all of your promises could be fulfilled and so that we could be saved. Father, right now we come before you and we wanna pray for anyone here this morning who's listening to this message who, who hasn't yet met Jesus, who hasn't yet come to that place where they're convinced that Jesus is your son who died for their sins and rose from the dead so that they could have eternal life. We pray for them this morning, Lord. We pray that you would open their eyes. We pray that you would, you would help them to see that your love and your forgiveness and eternal life aren't something they need to work for. It's not something they need to earn or merit, but it's something that your son has already earned for them. We pray that you would help them to say yes to the gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ. We pray for all of us who have said yes to that gift. As we enter this week of Easter, I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts, building up within us incredible gratitude for the gift of your Son. At the end of the day, there's so much that we don't know about you, there's so much that we don't yet understand about you, and yet we know that right here in the center of history, 2,000 years ago, your Son took on human flesh to die in our place. We thank you so much for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ who shed his blood so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. Help us to live lives of gratitude this week as we celebrate the death and resurrection of your beloved son. In whose name we pray and for whose glory we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Parents, it's great to have you with us today.